Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. We're happy that you're here. Whether you are live with us in the worship center or you are joining us in the Cross Point Center, I see you back there. I see the Grants and Davises sitting on the back row. I see the bourgeois a little bit to my left. I see Debbie Houghton sitting right in front of them. I see you got, not really, I was there earlier this morning and I know where you're sitting. But it's good to have you there as you join with us in the Cross Point Center. Welcome, it's great to have you. Those of you who are watching us online from home, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come into your living room. We want to invite you to our living room and want to encourage you to come and be a part of a faith family where we step outside of virtual fellowship and step into real fellowship. So I want to encourage you to come and join with us. I'm excited about this morning because we're beginning a new series on one of the most significant books in the New Testament. Now, there are 66 books in the Bible. Every single one of them is inspired by God. Every one of them is the Word of God. But there are certain books that God has used through history to really stir the hearts and the minds of individuals and to use it in a way that actually transforms people's lives and even cultures um, as a result of that. And today, we're going to launch into a study of the book of Romans. Now, when we look through history and the use of the book of Romans, particularly um, in the early church, it's really fascinating to see what happened and how God has used this book in the lives of a number of great giants in the Christian faith. It was in 386 September, a 32-year-old professor of rhetoric from Milan, Italy, was sitting in his garden weeping. He was crying over his own depravity, his own sinfulness. He was a young man that gave himself to wine and to women. He lived a life of promiscuity, and he was absolutely distraught with his despicable behavior. As he's sitting in his garden and he's weeping, he hears a child singing in a garden next door. And the child is singing, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he's thinking, I don't know of any childhood games that uses that. And so as he's listened to that, he looked to his bench where he was sitting, and there was a scroll of the book of Romans. And he picked it up, and when he opened it, it opened to Romans 13, verses 13 to 14. And here's what he read. Not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. At that moment, a young Augustine surrendered his life to Christ. And he later became the Bishop of Hippo. He later became one of the greatest defenders of the faith that Christianity has ever known, and we know him as St. Augustine. He's written several incredible books and helped in the forming and the fashioning of theological statements that are still with us today. Sometime later in 1515, another young man who was struggling with his own walk with God, feeling like, I can't quite measure up. 
And, and, and he's working as hard as he can, but he was being tortured in his spirit because he never felt like he can do enough. He even joined a monastery thinking that if I go and be a monk and I give myself locked away in reading scripture and praying, surely God would receive me. And in the midst of all of that, he was tortured. He was alone. He felt so far from God. One of the priests came to him and said, listen, I want you to teach the book of Romans to a group of young students. And as he began to study the book of Romans, he came to understand that justification only comes by faith and not by works. And with that, Martin Luther surrendered his life to faith in Christ. And as a result, came the Protestant Reformation. Some years later, in 1738, May 24th, on a Wednesday night, a young man walks into a church service. He too was distraught and sick of his Christian life. There was no authenticity to it. He had spent two years on the mission field with his brother, and he said that the Indians that were living on the mission field had a deeper authentic faith than he did. He was empty, he was cold, he was dead inside, he was going through the motions, and he walked into that little church service. The preacher took the commentary written by Martin Luther on the book of Romans, and as he began to read from that commentary, John Wesley said his heart was strangely warmed and he surrendered his life to faith in Christ and from that started the Methodist movement and the Methodist church. We can see through the course of history how God has used this book in an incredible way. Other people have written incredible words about this book. John Calvin says this. He says, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasure of Scripture. William Tyndale, who is a great teacher of the Word of God, a great Bible scholar, and a translator of the Bible in many languages, says this. For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and most pure evangelion, that is to say, glad tidings and that we call the gospel, I think it needs every Christian not only to know it, but also to exercise himself therein ever more continually. As with the daily bread of the soul, no man can verily read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the more pleasant it is. And the more deeply it is searched, the more precious are the things found in it. A more modern day pastor in California, John MacArthur, writes these words. Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest of soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. I like that. And this morning, we are launching into a 30-week study of the book of Romans. Some of you are thinking 30 weeks. Well, there have been pastors that have preached on this for 10 years. So 30 weeks sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> and as we look into this, we are going to discover some incredible truths. We're going to find the greatest argument 
for the gospel that you can ever imagine. We're going to find the greatest reason that we need the gospel that you can ever understand. And as we look into this book, and if you stick with us and you go through this process, at the end of this study, you will know more about God, more about the gospel, more about your own life, and you will experience a radical transformation in your own walk with Jesus. And some of you will come to know the Savior for the very first time. So here's what we're going to do. Each week, we're going to read a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to read a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk about all the themes of Romans. But what we're also going to do is provide for you a, a reader's guide. Matter of fact, you can go to scottshill.org and you will find a link to the Romans study and the resources thereof, and you will find a, a, a reading schedule for you to do every week. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want, you to, I want to ask you to read. Read the passages before you get here on Sundays so you'll be familiar with it. And as we go through it, God is already going to be speaking to your heart as we gather in this place. Now, before we launch into it, I want to give you a very quick overview of the whole book and how it's outlined. There are basically five sections of the book of Romans. It begins with sin, chapter 1, verses 18 to 320. Then it moves to salvation, chapters 321 to 521. Then it starts talking about the sanctification, Romans 6 through 8. Then the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 through 11. And then the service that we are to exemplify in Romans 12 through 16. So those are basic five ways we're going to break it down. But today we're going to do the introduction. So if you have your Bibles, take and open to Romans chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 1 through 17. That's a big chunk. And we're going to make it through it very quickly because I want you to see the introduction and how significant this is in our life. So here's what we're going to cover in the introduction. We're going to talk about the man... Paul and his conversion. We're going to talk about the message and his confidence. We're going to talk about his ministry and his concern. And then we're going to talk about his motivation, which is his commitment. We're going to flow right through there. So I've already given you the outline. So let's follow together with that. Let's begin in prayer. Father, as we launch into this study, we're leaning upon you, your Holy Spirit, to teach us, to guide us, and to teach us the things, show us the things, and transform our hearts and minds, even today as we begin this, this introduction of this incredibly inspired book that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you ready? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first thing we're going to look at is the man. We're going to look at the apostle Paul. He begins right away, and he gives us the introduction. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, a couple of things I want you to know. Notice that he begins with his name, Paul. The way they wrote letters in the ancient world is a lot different than we write letters today. They begin with their name, and you know immediately who the author is. When you and I send letters, we begin with, Dear Mary, Dear John, Dear Kim, Dear Sue. We start like that, and then we sign our name at the bottom of it. We always start with the people that we're writing to, then we sign our name at the bottom. If you're like me, if you get a card in the mail, the first thing you do before you read it is you open it up and you go to the bottom to see who sent you the card. 
I always do that. And if somebody sends me a letter, the first thing I do is I want to see who sent the letter to me. If it's anonymous, I wad it up and throw it away. I never read it because that's a coward that writes that way. Why? Because the name of the person writing the letter or the card is very significant because it means that there's something important about it. So what Paul does, he begins right in the beginning and he introduces himself. This is Paul and I'm writing to you who are the Romans. Now, another thing you need to know that the apostle Paul is the author of this letter. He had never visited Rome up to this point. He did not found the church in Rome. He had never been there. He wants to go there, as we'll find out in a few minutes. He was in Corinth when he wrote this letter, and he was there about three months. His reason for writing the letter is he wants the Christians in Rome to have a deep understanding of the nature of sin, the importance of salvation, the sanctification that God has for them, how his sovereignty is going to work in their lives, and how they are to serve one another in the community. This is what we find all through the book of Romans. So what do we know about Paul? Let's take just a couple of moments and talk about the man who wrote this letter. I'm gonna run through this pretty quickly. First of all, his original name is Saul of Tarsus. Saul, he probably took the name or he was given the name after King Saul of Israel, the very first king. And King Saul was the tallest, most handsome guy in all of Israel. So you can say that he liked the name Saul because he was Saul the Tall. You know, And so this is his given name. Here's the second thing we know about him. He was a student of the law, an incredible student of the law, in fact. He was trained under Gamaliel, who was the key teacher of that day. And you don't ask a teacher to train you. The teacher tr asks you to join him. And Paul was such an incredible student that he went to him. He said, I want you to be one of my students. We also know from Philippians that the apostle Paul was a genius and understanding. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he was a true bloodline of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the top of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And then when it comes to zeal for the law, the law of Moses, nobody could be compared to the apostle Paul. He was brilliant, outstanding, incredible student of God's word. Here's the third thing. He was a spiritual terrorist against Christianity. He hated the church. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. He was so zealous for the law of Moses that he hated people who were opposing it. You find in Acts chapter 8 and, and, and that, that he is giving the permission for the very first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen. He gives the men permission to stone him to death. Then after that, he launches out in a systematic abuse of the church, arresting men and women, putting them in jail, even giving the permission for their execution. He hated the people of God. And this is what religion does. Have you ever known religious people, people who are really, really religious, but they don't have a relationship with God? They are filled with self-righteousness and hatred, and they're always pointing the finger at other people. Some of the meanest people I've ever met are the most religious people I've ever met. And so religion isn't the answer. Here's the other thing Paul was. He was a servant of Christ. After all of this, Pursuing his own life, pursuing his own agenda, pursuing his own goals on the road to Damascus to arrest, arrest Christians and have them thrown in prison, the Lord Jesus appears to him. 
He has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And in that encounter, it so radically changed his life. Listen to this. Paul changes his name. He goes from Saul, and now he's Paul. Saul means tall one. You know what Paul means? Little man. Little man. He went from Saul the tall to Paul the small. And the word there, servant, in the Greek is the word doulos, which means slave. Paul had such an encounter with Jesus Christ. He was no longer pursuing his own goals, his own ambitions. Now he was a slave of Jesus Christ. No longer pursuing all of the academia and the titles that made him tall. Now he's pursuing Christ where he is less than all and puts himself at the very bottom. So now he is a servant, a slave of Christ, but he's also a sent one. He says he's an apostle. The word apostle has two meanings. There's a technical term for apostle, and then there's a general term for apostle. The technical term is somebody who has seen the risen Lord and has been commissioned by him to go and preach the gospel. That was Paul. When he saw the Lord Jesus resurrected on that way to Damascus and Jesus commissioned him to preach to the Gentiles, Paul was an apostle, and there were only 12. There were the 11 minus Judas and the apostle Paul. After that, the secession of apostleship in the technical sense has ceased. However, in the small sense, it means one sent. We're all sent, and Paul was sent on a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ. For what? Here's the last one. Set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. It's really crazy. The word set apart means sanctified. This guy who was a spiritual terrorist, who hated the church, who had failure after failure after failure towards God, God set him apart and used this wicked man to accomplish his incredible purposes. You see, there's some of you here today, you're thinking God could never use me. God, if you only knew what I did in my past, if you only knew how I failed, God will never use me. And that is a lie because the prerequisite for being used by God is to be a broken mess because we're all that, every one of us. And he is set apart for the gospel of God. The good news of God. The word God here is used 153 times in the book of Romans. It's an average of one for every 46 words. We find God because the book of Romans is all about God. It's all about his good news. And what does Paul identify himself with from this point on? He is no longer Saul the tall, but he is Paul the small. And his identification is the good news of God. As I studied it this week, this is where the Holy Spirit challenged me. Phil, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for some great accomplishments? Do you want to be known for your family? Do you want to be known for your success in ministry? Or do you want to be known that you're set apart to tell the good news of Jesus Christ? What about you? What about you? What do you want to be known for? As a child of God, is it about your accolades? Is it about your accomplishments? Is it about your um, um, achieving success? Is it about the possessions that you're going to earn? Is it about the comfort of your life? Or is it about being a slave to Jesus, to where you belong to him and to him only? There's the man 
Congratulations, Scotts Hill. We just finished verse one of Romans. We have 433 verses left. So there's the man. But here's the second thing we see about Paul. We see the message. And here we find his confidence. What is it that made Paul so confident about the message? I mean, Paul's going to spend the rest of his life declaring the message of the gospel of God. And so what he's going to do, he's going to face difficult times. He's going to face imprisonment. He's going to face riots. He's going to face beatings. He's going to face being stoned and left for dead. He is going to face shipwrecks. He's going to face starvation. He's going to face cold and heat. Why would he do all of that for the message of the gospel? It's because of his confidence in the gospel. And I want to show you several reasons why his confidence was so deep in the message. Number one, the message is promised from the beginning of time. This is nothing new. This is not some new novel philosophy. Notice how he puts it in verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The message of the gospel is nothing new. It's been found from the very beginning of creation. From Genesis to Revelation, every single book of the Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single book from the Old Testament to the New Testament points to Jesus. If I had time to go through the 66 books, I would give you the message of Jesus in every single one of those. For instance, in, in, in Genesis, he is the ram at Abraham's altar providing the sacrifice on our behalf. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb, the blood on our hearts protecting us from the enemy of death. In Leviticus, what is he? He is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet greater than Moses. And we can go on and you can look at Psalms. He is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. We can keep looking in Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In Daniel, he is the extra man, the fourth man in the fire. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. In Matthew, he's the king of kings. In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. And in Revelation, he is the king who is coming. Lift up your eyes, church, for he will come with 10,000 angels to get his bride. Every single book of the Bible declares who he is. And Paul begins there because there's nothing new about the message. We're no different than the Romans. You know what we want so many times? We want something new. We want something fresh. We want something different when we haven't mastered the old truths that God has already given us to cling to hang on to. So we see that it's promised from the very beginning of time. Here's the second reason he was so confident in the message. It was personified in Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. He puts it this way, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. The whole gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. Let me say something very clear we need to understand. Jesus never said, follow these principles. He never said, follow these steps. He never said, follow this particular path. He never said, follow these teachings. No, he said, follow me. 
follow me. Jesus made the gospel always about him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am eternal life. Follow me. When he was confronting his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, he asked him, who do people say that I am? And they gave names. And Peter says, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus didn't say, whoa, wait, 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 Peter, Peter, whoa, man, you get a little carried away there. Come on, tone it down. No, he said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Why? Christianity's about Jesus. The gospel's about Jesus. The good news is not about you trying to apply some principle to your life. It's not about you trying to do better. It's not about you trying to make your marriage better, your kids more obedient, your job more successful. We've lost sight of that in a church. The gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, let me say something about the gospel right now. A lot of times we think the gospel is what we're to preach to the lost, We think the gospel is the diving board that gets us into the swimming pool. Wrong. The gospel is the pool. It's the pool because all of our life is in the gospel. And not only do I preach the gospel to my lost neighbors and coworkers, but every single day I preach the gospel to myself because I have to be reminded of what Jesus has done for me. And it is never any effort on my own, but it is always from him. So Paul is convinced because Jesus is the centerpiece. He's from the line of David, which accomplishes the fulfillment of prophecy. He is of the Holy Spirit of holiness, which means he's divinity, both humanity and divinity wrapped into one, which demonstrates the authenticity of who he is. So it's promised from the beginning. It's personified in Jesus. Here's the third reason Paul is so committed to the message is powered by the resurrection. Here's what he says. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen to me carefully. The most important event in all of human history is Easter Sunday. It will always be the most important event in all of human history. It's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me put it this way. It is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Some people will say he resurrected in spirit only. It doesn't matter if his body's there. Wrong. He is bodily resurrected from the dead. Why is that so important? His resurrection from the dead validated every single thing he ever said or did. And when he resurrected from the dead, it validated that he was the perfect sacrifice that God received on behalf of humanity. When he resurrected from the dead, it was the validation that every single thing he ever said can be trusted. But let me tell you this, if Jesus did not bodily resurrect from the dead, you and I would be fools to listen to anything he says. But since Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, you and I would be fools to ignore him. We'd be fools to ignore him. You know the interesting thing about all the religions of the world? They all look to Jesus as being a wonderful teacher, a godly man, someone who really lived, and someone who was falsely accused and died a terrible death. No religions of the world reject that. So no religion of the world rejects Jesus. But here's what's interesting. Jesus says, I reject all of them. 
because I'm the only one that can provide a way to the Father. And he proved it through his resurrection. And because of that, I'm going with the guy who did everything he said he could do. And there's my confidence in the gospel. Here's the fourth thing. It was provided through grace. The gospel's provided through grace. This is what Paul loves, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. We already talked about apostleship, but now he's talking about grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Every religion in the world seeks to work their way to God. Christianity is the only religion in the world where God works his way to man. And while we work our way to God, we try to earn something that we can, we can have good favor with him. But when God works to us, he's working towards broken people who have nothing to offer. And that is grace. When people say that Christianity is no different than the other religions of the world, they have no idea what they're talking about. Let me give you an illustration. Every single religion of the world, without exception, other than Christianity, operates by this. I obey, therefore... I'm accepted. If I do all these things, then God will accept me. Christianity is the only one that's different. Christianity says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. And the Apostle Paul is so convinced because of the grace of God that he shares in our life unmerited favor that we do not deserve. He's going to talk more about this, but he's convinced because of grace. Here's the last thing, for the purpose of transformation. Paul's convinced of the message of the gospel because it changes people's lives. Notice what he says, through whom we have been received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The mark of the transformation of a person into a relationship with God is obedience through faith. We don't obey to be saved. Because we saved, we now have the opportunity to obey. That's the picture. And here's the mark he's saying. The mark of God's transformation in people's lives is that their lives are so changed that now they want to walk in obedience and pleasing Jesus. The Apostle Paul knew about this. His life was radically changed as a result of that. And as I think of all of these things, here's where the conviction came into my heart this week. Am I so convinced of the gospel? Am I so convinced of the power of the gospel that I am willing to take it anywhere. And here's the other thing. Is my obedience a testimony to the reality that God changed me? Am I living in such a way that the testimony of God's power in my life is the fact that I'm willing to obey him when nobody else does? I'm willing to be canceled when everybody else is in self-preservation mode. I'm willing to stand on the truth. I'm willing to declare what Jesus has done for me, even though everyone walks away and the testimony of my obedience becomes the greatest sign of transformation. I think this is where we're missing it today.
We love to talk about how much we love Jesus. We love to talk about how much we want to serve him. We love to talk about how often we go to church. And that demonstrates no transformation. But when I walk in obedience, and I'm willing to submit myself to him as a slave for his glory, and people see the old Phil who used to live for himself and his own accomplishments and see the new Phil who's willing to die to every bit of that and the only concern of my heart is to please my father, they see transformation. And there is an incredible testimony. So we see the man and his conversion. We see the message, his absolute um, confidence in it. Here's the third thing we see. We see the ministry. Verses 7 through 13, Paul's ministry to the Romans. Paul's concern are two things. Let me give them to you very quickly. He's concerned about their position before God. He's concerned about their position before God. What does that mean? Well, here's how he puts it. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he concerned about? He's concerned about them really grabbing hold and understanding of who they are in Christ before God. And here's the first thing he says. He says that you're loved by God. You are loved by God. Now, let me just say something. All the time we hear this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of, how many of you have heard that through your life? How many of you have you heard people say, hey, God loves you? How many people have said How many of you have said that to people? How many of you have said that to your kids? How many of you have said that to your wife or to your husband when you never felt like saying anything like, no, we'll tell you. But no, the reality is this. The truth is we are loved by God. And here's the problem. We really don't get that. We really don't understand the depths of that. Let me just say this. It'd be real easy for me to convince you of your sin today. You know that? I have no problem convincing you of your sin. We could take a test right now with the Ten Commandments. How many of you ever lied? Raise your hand. Have you ever lied? If you don't raise your hand, you're doing it right now. So, <laughs> well, what's that make you? It makes you a liar. How many of you have ever stolen anything? Raise your hand. You're a lying thief. How many of you ever wanted something that your neighbors had that you don't have? You're a covetous lying thief. How many of you have ever disobeyed your parents? You're a rebellious covetous lying thief. How many of you ever wanted somebody mad at somebody really, really angry? Congratulations, you're a murderous covetous lying rebellious thief. I could go on. See, it's no problem for me to convince you that you're a sinner. But if I could convince you of how deeply God loves you, because of Christ, it would revolutionize your life. You wouldn't worry about what your neighbor says or what the coworker says or what Hollywood says or what politics say. If you really understand the depth of God's love for you, it would change you radically. And Paul is saying, you are beloved by God. He gave you his son. He suffered and died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He has given you his Holy Spirit. What more convincing do you need? That he will never leave you and forsake you? That your name's written in the Lamb's book of life? That one day you're going to be with him for all of eternity? Paul is so concerned, he wants them to know the depths of God's love for them. Let me ask you the question. 
Do you more easily see yourself as a sinner than as loved by God? That's where the devil wants you to be. That's where your own flesh wants you to be. Here's the second thing, called to be saints. It was there. You see the little words here, to be? They're in some translations, they're in italicized. They're not in the original text. It's called saints. It's not a process for you to become saints. Paul is saying you are saints. You're loved by God. You're saints. You don't have to measure up to a certain level. You don't have to go through a process where people vote on you. You don't have to have the Pope dedicate you or set you apart to be a saint. In Christ Jesus, you are a saint set apart for the glory of God. So he's concerned first about their position. But the second thing he's concerned about is his own petitions. He's concerned about his petitions before God. And so what does he do? He tells them about his prayer. Let's read through that real quick, and then we're going to jump to the next section. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This is an exciting church. He wants to be a part of this church. Paul can't go there. He hasn't been able to go there. This church was not surviving. It was thriving in Rome, the most important city on planet Earth. And so what does Paul do? He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He's saying, listen, God's my witness. I pray for you. And I continue to pray for you. I can't be there with you. I'm going to pray for you that God would do an incredible work in you, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He wants to be a part of this fellowship. So as iron sharpens iron, they will sharpen one another. Then he goes on and says this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I really want to be with you. I can't be there. So I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to bring you before the throne of God. I'm going to pray for you. God's my witness. How many of you ever told somebody you would pray for them and you forgot? Come on. Look, there's no judgment here. Go ahead. Raise your hand, bunch of sinners. Go ahead. No. We all do that. We all do. What Paul is saying is this. He's my witness. I pray for you. I don't forget to pray for you. And I keep praying for you. Here's a point he's making. One of the things we need to do is we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for this church. You need to pray for our leadership, and I hope you are. But we can pray. I meet people all the time who can't come to church physically because they're bound in the home. But you know what they all tell me? Pastor, I pray for you every day. I'm praying for the church. I'm praying for the leadership. I'm praying for our student ministry. I'm praying for our children. There are people who can't go on a mission field, and you know what they do every day? They pray for missionaries. And that's some of the greatest things we can do. So his concern is twofold, that they would walk in the position of being beloved by God and saints and that they are covered by the prayers of God's people. Now, let me ask you a question. I had to ask myself this. How often do we think about the ministry of the church. 
Let's be honest. Most of us, we don't think about it until Wednesday night or Sunday morning. Now, those of us who are in ministry, we never leave it. We're always in it. But here's the danger. We can spend a lot of our time praying for our ministries and fail to pray for you. And so we have to make sure that we're constantly praying and lifting you before the Lord. And one of the things that God has challenged me in through this is just to be more steadfast in our bringing one another before the throne of God. Because I'm going to tell you what, no matter how creative we can be, no matter how ingenious we can be, no matter how hardworking we can be, we cannot accomplish the things in the flesh that only the Spirit of God can do. And we bring that to him. So we see the man. We see the message. We've seen his ministry. Now here's the last one, his motivation, his commitment. What is his motivation? I've got seven minutes to share this with you. Here's his motivation. Three times in this passage, he uses the phrase, I am. What is he? Let me give you those three I am's. Number one, I am obligated. Verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Let me translate that. I am under obligation to those who are intellectually astute and the rednecks among us, both to the wise and to the stupid. What is he saying? He says, I'm obligated. You know what the word obligated means? It means I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. I owe a debt. Now, there are two ways you and I will owe a debt. If you give me $100 and you say, I'm going to loan you $100, I am in debt to you until I pay that $100 back. So that's one way of being in debt. There's a second way of being in debt. If you say, I'm giving you $100 and I want you to give this $100 to Jim. And so I am indebted to you to make sure what you have given to me goes to Jim. And if it doesn't, then I have stolen what you have desired for Jim, and I'm a thief. That's what Paul has in mind there. I am indebted to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, and to the foolish. Why? God has given to me a stewardship of the gospel. And he has given it to me so that I will give it to others. And he is obligated to do that. Paul is saying that I'm obligated with the gospel. And if I keep it to myself, I am actually stealing the very things that God wants for those who are around me. And Paul says, my debtedness is to them from the gift that God has given to me and I will pass it to them. He's obligated with the gospel. Here's the second thing, though. It gets even better. Not only is he obligated, he says, I'm eager. It's one thing to be obligated and feel like I have to do something. It's another thing to be eager and filled with joy and wanting to do it. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is both obligated because of the stewardship of the gospel, but he's eager. He can't wait to get to Rome, and he will get to Rome. But he will not go as a free man. He will go as a political prisoner in chains, in a dungeon, in a prison cell, awaiting execution by Nero. But anyway, he is eager to go. He can't wait to do it. And here's the third thing. I'm not ashamed. 
I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why did he write that? Because there can be the potential of being ashamed of the gospel. Paul knows what comes as a cost of sharing the gospel. He says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. People won't believe in the resurrection. They scoff at it. They did in Athens when he went there. And he was even a Pharisee and refused to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. People will scoff at the gospel. But he says, I am not ashamed of it. And here's why. He gives four reasons. Number one, the origin of the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. It comes from the resurrected Lord, who is the eternal, co eternally, eternally coexistent with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is the origin of the gospel. Secondly, the operation of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Not your persuasive words, not your skilled oratory approach, not anything you can do. It is the power of God. I can't tell you the number of times that I thought, man, I laid the gospel out so beautifully. This person is going to fall on his or her knees and weep and call on Jesus. They walk away cold. And then there are times I stumbled over it, trying to find the right verses, thinking I made a mess. And then God changes them. Why it's not me. It's the power of the gospel. I met a man by the name of R.F. Gates, who is one of the greatest evangelists I've ever met. He came to faith in Christ as a drunkard and a homeless man, walking on the banks of the Mississippi River. He looked down, and there was an old, swelled-up, green, Gideon little pocket Bible from the water. He opened it up, and the passage he went to is Acts, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. He fell right there without a preacher, without an invitation, surrendered his life to faith in Christ, and God radically changed him as one of the greatest evangelists in Louisiana. It's the power of God. That's why he's not ashamed. Here's a third reason. The outcome of the gospel. It leads to salvation. And finally, we find the outreach of the gospel to all who believe. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you had the opportunity to share the truth but something in you just said, ah, shut up, don't say it. They'll think you're a Jesus freak. They won't understand you. They'll reject you. I think we all can be there. But we will understand that there's nothing I can do to persuade anyone. It's the power of God that transforms lives. Would you be willing? Let me ask you this. Have you ever considered yourself obligated to tell the gospel to your neighbors? Have you ever considered yourself eager to can't wait to tell your coworker what Jesus has done for you? Have you ever been to the place where you're not ashamed because of the power of the gospel and what it has done in your life and what it can do in the lives of other people? That is the gospel. Now, we all, like Paul, find ourselves as the man. 
And unapologetically, I'm telling you today, if you're not a Christian and you're coming here, our goal is to convert you to Christ. Unapologetically. Because he's your greatest need. And we want to share that with you with the gospel, with the grace of God. So we see the man. We see his message. We see his ministry, and we see his motivation. What does that mean for you and me? How motivated are we? How motivated are we to share with people who are dying and going to hell the message that can lead them to eternal life. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. I want to read a quick story in closing. Adoniram and Ann Judson were the first United States missionaries to go overseas. Adoniram was engaged to Ann. Her last name was Hasseltine. And he wanted her to marry him before they went to Burma. And so in doing so, he wrote this letter to Anne's father. Men, I want you to imagine receiving this letter from your future son-in-law. Here's what he writes. He says, Dear Mr. Hasseltine, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in a world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamation of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathens who have been saved? through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Will you consent? I'd say, get out of here, boy. (laughs) Are you crazy? He said, I do consent. And he and Anne were married. They went to India. He was arrested and put in prison for 21 months. She gave birth to a child while he was there, and she was starving, walking the streets of Burma, begging women to nurse her daughter. When he finally got out, she had so little strength that she died within a few days, and his little girl died a week later. For the gospel. For the gospel. I can't tell my neighbor about Jesus. They might not talk to me again. I can't tell my co-workers what Jesus has done in my life. I might have to go through sensitivity training. 
I can't tell my peers at college what Jesus has done. That's intolerant. They'll cancel me. They'll call me names. They'll unfriend me. I won't have any social media platform. Yada, 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 yada. First world problems. Are you obligated? Are you eager? Are you not ashamed? What an incredible challenge to begin this series with. Because it convicts me to my core of how easy it is for us to talk about the loss and how seldom do we talk to the loss for the glory of Jesus. My prayer for you and for us is that as we go through this story of the gospel in Romans, that we will be obligated, that we will be ready, that we will not be ashamed. If you're a child of God, stick with us in this series. You're going to be amazed what you're going to learn. If you're not a child of God, stay with us in this series. God will change your mind and your heart, and you will come to know the Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beginning. Thank you for the challenge. I know we covered a lot in a short time, but Father, may the Holy Spirit take the pieces that we need to hear and burn them into our hearts and our minds that this will not be about us because we are servants of Jesus and it's about him. Father, give us the boldness. Give us the strength. Give us the courage. Give us the joy. Give us the excitement to tell the world of the greatest good news that they could ever hear. And it is the gospel of God. For in it, your righteousness is displayed right before our eyes that we might walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.